0: Well, we are going to be doing Daniel chapter 3 tonight, and I've been looking forward to this. Um, Back in February, before I had started on the book of Daniel, and I was just kind of beginning to study it, Chad sent me an email, and asked. he said, I know this is way early, but are there any songs in particular that you want while we're in the book of Daniel? And I said, I... Uh, I would like for one of my favorite songs to be played every week that we're in the book of Daniel. And that's Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down. (laughs) Which is not only one of the greatest Americana songs ever written, but it perfectly fits several places in the book of Daniel, if you really think about it. So this is the third verse of Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down. He says, well, I know what's right. I got just one life in a world that keeps on pushing me around but I'll stand my ground, and I won't back down. And then the chorus is, hey, baby, there ain't no easy way out. Hey, I will stand my ground. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it would be a good idea if I sang it. Sorry. Hey, I will stand my ground, and I won't back down. So think of Daniel and his friends unwilling to be eaten into Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom by accepting the food and drink from his table. Think of Daniel, who hears King Darius' decree that nobody may pray other than to King Darius, and Daniel goes up and prays anyway. Think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who are thrown into the fiery furnace, rather than bow down to a monstrous idol. They also, those three, they knew what was right. They also had just one life, right? And they were getting pushed around by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's wise guys, but they decided that they would rather forfeit their own lives and willingly give themselves than give themselves willingly to what they knew to be false. Right. So we're going to sit before Daniel three tonight, and it's a very familiar story. That's one of the, the real challenges about reading it is to to try to hear it again for the first time, because if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard this, you know, back when you were a kid. So let me pray that we can hear it anew and let the Spirit confront us through it in new ways. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are gathered tonight to worship you, uh, to, to plant our flag in your good name. And we pray that the preaching of the word would encourage us. We pray that we would leave encouraged by what you have done and by what you continue to do. And to know that you are always with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to walk through it. Starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, In the province of Babylon. So, in the previous story, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of an image, right? In chapter 2, he has the dream of an image made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And this image foretold of of his empire, but also empires that were going to follow it. Now, this image that Nebuchadnezzar builds in chapter 3 is probably, most scholars think it's probably the same image that he saw in his dream. But look what he does, he improves it. He improves it by making it gold from head to toe. Why does he do that? Because he is the head of gold, right? In chapter 2, Daniel tells him that he is the head of gold. And so he makes the whole thing gold. And I think by, by making it gold, because he is the head of gold, he's, trying, he's hoping to freeze history and create his own everlasting kingdom. To not have his kingdom usurped later by another, but to have an everlasting kingdom of his own. And by making this image of gold, it would seem to kind of preserve his kingdom. Now, there's a lot going on with numbers in this story. If you've read it before, you might recognize that there's a lot of lists and there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of numbers. So let's start with the number six. The image has a height of 60 cubits and it has a breadth of six cubits. Now, the number six has significance in scripture. Most numbers do have significance in scripture, the number 6 has significance in that on the 6th day of creation man was created. Okay? So when we when we see the number 6 in the Bible a lot of times the writer wants us to think back to the 6th day of creation and the creation of man. Now you probably know in Revelation what's the number of the beast? 666, six, six, right? It's kind of often built up as this big scary spooky thing, okay? But the full passage says this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So it's referring to a man, the sixes. And if you ever want to know what that really means, uh, Chad would be real happy to sit down with, with any of you anytime and explain it. But just know that sixes often reach back to the, to the creation week, and the creation of of man on the sixth day. So what does that mean though for our passage other than being interesting? What does it mean for our passage? Well, look at the dimensions, 60 by six, okay? That's probably not by accident. I think we're to see this as not only the image of a man, but also that this image is man's project. This is Nebuchadnezzar's project. It's a man's project. And it's his project to control world events as best as he can and prevent his kingdom from passing away. And this image with all the sixes in its dimensions probably also should tip us off that it's doomed to fail. This human project is not going to succeed. It's, it's a little bit more veiled, but in the Tower of Babel story, there's a sixly element in it. And that project failed as well. Alright, continue on, verse 2, and I promise I will not make comments after every single verse. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we get two really important insights in just this passage about how the story is structured. Some things that we really want to pay attention to. And uh, so here's, here's an important principle when you're reading scripture. When you see a list of things, start counting the things in the list. Because the number that you come up of the things in the list probably has some kind of significance, and the author wants to point you to it. So um, when we count here, we come up with a list of seven of these officials. It kind of looks like eight. There's one or two things that could be going on. I don't want to get into the nerdy details, but it's possible that prefects and governors are really kind of the same office, or that all the officials, uh, the way that it's put at the end, the officials of all the provinces um, it's just kind of like a miscellaneous category that comes after the other seven. What we really are supposed to take away from it is that it's a list of seven, okay? Um, so, uh, let me move on from there. As you probably know, seven is a significant number in Scripture, right? Seven is a very important number in the Bible. First, it's the number of the days of creation in Genesis 1. There are seven days of creation. And it's also the day on which God rested from his work. So God rests on the seventh day from his work. And throughout Scripture, God often works in patterns of seven. And I think what the writer is trying to tell us in this list of seven officials is that Nebuchadnezzar's agenda with this image, it's not only a man-centered project, but it's also his attempt to play God. It's his attempt at sevenfold control, trying to hold power as God holds power. is not God, but the way that he's instituting his design on the empire shows that he wants to be, or at least he wants to be God over his empire and make sure that it never passes away. So for him, everything must go like clockwork. And so he summons the officials and it says that the officials come. There's no hesitation. He summons them and they come. And we see this in the wearying repetition in the story. Okay, so maybe you've noticed this if you've read it before, the, all the repetition. So in verse 2, we're given the list of who's required to attend the dedication, right? The satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. They're summoned. Now, if you or I had written verse 3, we would have said, and then they came, right? Right? But instead, verse three just repeats the whole list of all the officials again. And we get another list and we get more repetition in the verses that follow. So picking up at verse four. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, how many instruments? If you count the last one, all kinds of music, which probably should be translated just musical instruments. How many? Seven, okay, there's seven instruments here. And we get the whole list of them twice. Doesn't just say, and they heard the instruments and then they bowed down. The repetition shows what Nebuchadnezzar is up to. Not only is he trying to freeze his rule in time, but he's also, he's doing so by trying to control worship in the empire, he's trying to put his stamp on worship in the empire, all across the empire, because the satraps and prefects and governors and all the rest would have come from all over different parts of the empire and then be taking this back to their places. So he wants to control worship. And there's a penalty for non-compliance. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. This is another clue that right worship is central to this whole story. So let me try to put it all together, okay? Picture Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. At the center is the Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant made of? Anybody know? It's made of gold, okay? The Ark of the Covenant is made of gold. Outside, in the courtyard, there's a blazing fire on the altar of bronze, right? That's where sacrifices are brought. And when the sacrifices are offered, the Levites play instruments prescribed by David. This is in First Chronicles 25. You read about the instruments and how when the sacrifices were brought, uh, the Levites would play instruments while the sacrifices were being burned. You have the same elements here in Nebuchadnezzar's worship. You have an image of gold at the very center. You have fire burning in a fiery furnace. And you have music that summons people to come and worship. So I think the writer of the story, by comparing the temple with Nebuchadnezzar's worship and what he set up, is showing that he's trying to maintain his rule by commandeering the worship of everybody in the empire. That's how he's going to make his reign last. But it's a false copy of God-ordained worship. It is not the true thing. And the repetition shows that so far, everything is happening according to plan. Everything is happening the way that Nebuchadnezzar wants it to. The sevenfold list of officials are summoned and they show up. They hear the sevenfold sound of the music and they bow down. So far, everything has gone like clockwork, but there's just one hitch. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, again, this is a very familiar story to us. We know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in it. But if you're reading the story for the first time, you don't know which of Daniel and his friends are actually in the story until this part, until the Chaldeans come and rat them out to Nebuchadnezzar. You don't know that until that point. But we might guess it because at the end of chapter 2, we're told this. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted. They're sent to the province of Babylon, and that's where this image is set up. So because we're told that the image is in the province of Babylon, if we remember that uh shadrach meshach and abednego were sent there we might make that connection sometimes reading the bible is like playing the game of memory you know where you have all these cards set out face down and you flip one over and there's a tree you flip another one there's a rainbow and you try to match them up and so you you flip something over and you're like oh i remember that from a couple turns ago sometimes reading scriptures like that where you come across a word or a phrase and it harkens you all the way back to something in this case, it's, it's hearkening back to the previous story. And Daniel is, remains at the king's court, and that's probably why he doesn't factor into this story at all. Now, so far, Daniel has been a leader to these three friends, and so the question is asked, when push comes to shove and when the pressure comes, how are these three going to respond because Daniel is not with them? Now, remember from chapter 2 that the Chaldeans are the wise guys. They're, the, they're kind of like the chief wise guys for Nebuchadnezzar. And they're only alive in the first place because Daniel saved their lives. Because Daniel knew Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpreted it for him, the lives of the wise men were saved. If it wasn't for Daniel, they'd have been killed. And yet they, they conspire against his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they stoke the king's anger by making the three seem very ungrateful. They basically say you promoted these three to rule over the Babylonian provinces and look how they're repaying you. They're not bowing down and they're not worshiping this statue that you've set up, this image that you've set up. Also, we don't find out that Shadrach, Bishak and Abednego aren't complying with the law until we hear it from the Chaldeans. That's the first that we hear of it. And I think this is instructive for us. They don't stage a protest. They don't try to rally support for their side. And we don't even hear the content of their prayers. We don't even hear their prayers to God. They don't draw attention to themselves other than when everybody hears the sound of all those instruments. I was real tempted to go through the list again. When they hear the sound of all those instruments, they just carry on doing the good work that they were doing in the empire. They don't participate. They don't comply. They don't draw attention to themselves, but they don't participate. They know that they have a role to play in the Babylonian Empire. They serve God as they serve the king, but they will not participate in false worship. They will not participate in the false worship that he set up. There are limits to their service. They're going to serve the king, but there are limits to their service. And this is a hill that they're willing to die on. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar basically says, boys, I'm going to be gracious. You know, the penalty was you would immediately be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. I'm going to be gracious. I'm having a good day. I'll give you a second chance. So as soon as I strike up the band, I want you guys to fall down. I want you to worship the image. And he closes by asking, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In Scripture, hands are a symbol of power. And if you remember when we've talked about the progression of priest, king, prophet, how each of those offices is associated with a body part. Priests are associated with the ear. Prophets are associated with the feet. Kings are associated with the hand. And so... You know, at the beginning of Daniel, we're told that King Jehoiakim was given into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And when Daniel's explaining the king's dream in chapter two, he describes the range of Nebuchadnezzar's empire by saying, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and so on. The hand symbolizes The range of power that nebuchadnezzar has and nebuchadnezzar says that if the three men will not bow down to the image there is no one who will deliver them from his hand the only thing keeping them from being incinerated is him but nebuchadnezzar has forgotten something from his earlier dream he's forgotten something from the dream that he had in chapter 2 because daniel also said as you looked a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So there's, a, there's more than just Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He's not the only one with a hand. And the three young men know this. They know this. And they haven't forgotten this truth. So they respond in, chapter, in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are unwilling to participate in this idolatrous worship. And as government officials, it was not their place To mount an attack on this worship. They simply refrained from joining in. They simply weren't going to participate. And that might have gone unnoticed by everybody. Except for the Chaldeans who kind of had it in for them. And they were probably just envious that Daniel and his friends got promoted. And they didn't. And these three are not going to back down. And this is their only speech in the whole story. Verses 16 through 18 in chapter 3. It's the only time that they talk in the whole story. They know that their God has the power to save them. And they might have drawn from Deuteronomy 420, which says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. And what God had done before, God could certainly do again. But they also understood that he might not. God might not do that. And this act of obedience to God might cost them their lives. Well, that would have to be so if it came to that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar could probably forgive those three if they were just utterly deluded and just said, nope, no matter what, God is going to save us. If you throw us in the furnace, God is absolutely going to rescue us out. And he might have forgiven them for being utterly deluded and thinking that. What makes him so angry is that they're saying they are perfectly fine with dying rather than worshiping that image. They say, but if not... We're not serving your gods. And that's what really sets him off. And anyone on the outside looking in would say, what a ridiculous, sad waste of life. Just worship the image. You don't have to mean it. It doesn't mean anything. You don't have to mean it. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying is, yes, we would rather be a ridiculous, sad waste of life than worship that image because worshiping it in any way means meaning it. If you worship something false in any way, it really means it. You can't worship and not mean it. Because doing the act means that you mean it. Whatever you may tell yourself in, the, in your head, however you may rationalize it, when you participate in false worship, you really mean it. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. This guy has serious anger issues. He is frequently angry. the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. One thing I've always found interesting about this is that heating the furnace seven times hotter is literally overkill. It really is. Because you can't be more dead than dead. Just it its normal amount would kill them. Heating it up seven times isn't really going to do anything more. But, so what what should we take from that? Is there anything relevant there? It's a seven. He heats it seven more times. And again, I think the writer is pointing to the demand to exert control. Also note that the three men are bound as sacrifices, as Isaac was bound and prepared for sacrifice. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors... Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods or a son of the gods. Now, the King James Version says son of God, not son of the gods. And I think that makes more sense here. Son of God. In Psalm 2, the Son of God refers to God's appointed ruler. So this is the latter half of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In a way, Nebuchadnezzar is the son of God in the sense that he's God's appointed ruler for this stage in history. But he has no right to hijack the worship of the true son of God, of the true God. And now in the fire, he catches a glimpse of the true son of God. He thought he was the son of God. But he catches a glimpse of the true son of God in the fire. There is a king above this king. And this king is powerful enough to stop Nebuchadnezzar's sevenfold fire from harming his servants. This king and not Nebuchadnezzar is the true lord of fire. And his hand is stronger and his hand is able to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And remember, I brought this up uh, in chapters 1 and 2. God is building a new house In the world, one that starts with Babylon and Daniel and his three friends are the four corners of this house. And Daniel is the cornerstone, right? But Daniel hasn't been present in this story. He hasn't been around. Instead, when it comes to true worship and withstanding the pressure to conform, the cornerstone of this new house is the son of God. It's the one walking in the midst of the fire with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, the son of God. He's the cornerstone of true worship. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the supremacy of their god by referring to him as Most High God. And it's not clear at this point that Nebuchadnezzar has made their god his god, but that will happen in the next chapter. But for now, he issues a new command that nobody can speak against their God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted again. So we've had three stories in the first three chapters. We've had three tests and three promotions. They all end with them getting promoted. And as I mentioned before, these stories would have gotten back to Jerusalem before Jeremiah's exile. They would have gotten back to Jerusalem. And the unmistakable message that they would have gotten is, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Don't rebel. God is at work in Babylon. He's abandoned the temple and its false worship. And just as he has protected Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah by walking in the midst of the fire with them, he will walk with you. Don't rebel. Is that good? All right, I want to go on to uh, two points of, I, I don't know that i call them application As much as proclamation, just good things to encourage us, things that are important. And the first one is this people who know who they are are hard to control. People who know who they are are hard to control. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew in advance what they would be unwilling to do. It began with not partaking of the food at the king's table and not partaking of his wine. And so when the time came to not participate in worshiping the image, there was really no great decision to make. They already knew what to do. And I think this is why we're not told that when the three heard the edict, we're not told that they went and, and sought God about what to do. We're not told that they prayed about what they should do. and We're not told that they agonized over how to relate to the king's command. When we get their short speech in 16 through 18, their only speech in the whole story, it comes out as a settled conviction in their hearts that was there long before Nebuchadnezzar ever made this statue. In Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Jesus releases us from the grip of sin so that we can truly be ourselves. Satanic powers look to control. Christ sets us free, but satanic powers look to control. And we saw it with Nebuchadnezzar's sevenfold command, the music plays and you drop <clears throat> and you bow down. Satanic powers don't care about your convictions. They just want you to conform or they'll cast you out. I saw an article this week, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw an article this week, and it had this headline. It said, companies will not be able to remain silent about abortion. Implying that companies are going to have to go public about their stance about abortion. It's nothing, companies are not going to be free to just be companies and do their companies thing. They're going to have to weigh in on the issue of abortion and the the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And so in the coming days, companies are going to scramble their PR departments together. They're going to craft statements decrying anything to do with ending abortion in this country. It's virtue signaling. It happens all the time. And it's going to happen. You know, it's just going to continue to happen. But if satanic powers are about control, we need to be prepared that the pressure won't merely be on PR departments, but on actual people and how actual people relate to the issue of abortion. From CEOs on down, the requirement may may very well be that people, even rank-and-file people like you and me, declare where they are on contentious cultural issues. And it's it's not all that far-fetched that if you say that you're a Christian, people's response won't be, Why do you believe in a God who died and was raised from the dead? but so are you for or against abortion, or so are you for or against trans people. The dividing line is not so much theological, but more about conforming to social norms. One writer that I respect said that when he took a certain job that he was unsure about, he wasn't sure if it would threaten to change him in ways that he didn't want to be changed. For peace of mind, He wrote a resignation letter and he put it in his file cabinet. On the first day, he wrote a resignation letter, put it in his file cabinet, and he felt greatly at peace by knowing that if at any point he was being pushed farther than he wanted to be pushed, he could just produce that letter and hand it in. And so if you work, wherever you work, you need to have a resignation letter written deep in your heart. You need to have a resignation letter written deep in your heart and have it ready when you cannot remain employed without worshiping the gods of this age. And I think if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were here, they would say to each of us, no virtue signaling is worth your soul. If you worship the false gods of this age, you really mean it, whether you think you do or not. Whatever you do really counts. People who know who they are are hard to control. They may take away their life or their livelihood, but you can't take their soul. And and I think, of it, I think of it this way. You know, I'm, I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. And because I'm being conformed to the image of Christ, I'm confronted daily with my many shortcomings, with my petty grievances, with my capacity to shrink the whole world down to just whatever is affecting me at the moment, and just my overall immaturity. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me, conforming me to the image of Christ in these areas. But I consider all of that to be a total waste if I don't have a settled conviction in my heart that I won't live by lies. You know, I want to be able to say, God, take away everything if you have to. Just let me be faithful. I want to be faithful. But if I'm genuflecting to the gods of this world, I've already lost. And whatever I'm doing in my spiritual practices is just self-tinkering. It's just personal growth. It's not really being conformed to the image of Christ if I'm worshiping the gods of this age. People who know who they are have an inner yes to the truth that precedes their outward no to lies. Amen. Amen. Second point is that we do not walk in the midst of the fire alone. We do not walk in the midst of the fire alone. So given all of what I've just said about the pressure to conform, you might think that I'm predicting a, a coming time of persecution. But I'm not, because I really don't know. I'm, I'm not prescient in that regard. I, I, can't, I can't predict the future. But I am predicting what settled convictions in our hearts we need to have in advance in order to remain intact should persecution come. Um, last week, I got the newest edition of Touchstone magazine in the mail. Touchstone is connected with the group that does the St. James Reader that many of us use. And so I was was working on on, uh, Daniel chapter 3 in this story, and I get this magazine that says, Babylon's Furnace, Truth, Suffering, and the Hard Road Ahead. And it's written by Rod Dreyer, who wrote uh, The Benedict Option. Maybe some of you have read The Benedict Option. And I thought, well, this seems timely. I should probably read that. And Dreyer says that we need to prepare for a coming time of persecution a time of real persecution. He says, America is not the country that it once was, and we may need to go into Babylon's furnace. And I, again, I don't know. I don't know if he's right. But if that's true, if it is true, what we need to remember is that we can be comforted by the fact that we don't walk in the midst of the fire alone. We don't walk alone. The Son of God is with us in the midst of everything that's seeking to destroy us. And he can make sure that we are not really harmed. Are we going to be harmed in some ways? Yes. Can you lose your job, your house, your status, your friends, even your family, and even your life? Yes. But you can lose all that and still not be harmed. In Revelation 14, after the martyrs die, Revelation kind of tracks a group of martyrs throughout. After the martyrs die, we see them singing a new song before the throne of God. And the message, I think, is that they are okay, they've been preserved. And their joy surpasses their earthly trials. They're not ultimately harmed. And most importantly, they are with the lamb who was slain. And it is said of them in their mouth, no lie was found. They were not willing to worship the false gods of their age, and they paid for it with their life. Daniel 3 is a familiar story for almost all of us, and it has a happy ending. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live, and they're promoted. And the enduring lesson for Christian discipleship is in their decisive statement. But if not, but if not, our God is able to deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Come what may. And we can say that honestly and even cheerfully because the son of God walks with us in the midst of the fire. I started with one song tonight. Tom Petty's I won't back down. I'm going to end with another, and it's the last verse of the hymn that we sang just a little bit ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, ends like this. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the way that your spirit encourages us with it. And we don't know what's coming in the future, but we do know that you call to us, that you exhort us to not live by lies. And we pray that you would strengthen us, help us to have a settled conviction in our heart to not compromise on truth. May we not go looking for trouble the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't go looking for trouble. But if trouble comes, may we be able to stand and to stand faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.